from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm Christopher Calloway, your host for Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. Returning to the show is my guest, Laszlo Tomasvi, to discuss his new book, an English translation of the screenplay of and related articles about Dracula's death. It is the first motion picture to feature the character of Dracula. This Hungarian silent film, made in 1921, does not adhere to Bram Stoker's novel, Dracula. It was an original story in which a woman named Mary experiences frightening visions after being admitted to an insane asylum where one of the inmates claims to be Count Dracula. Mary has trouble determining whether the inmate's visions are real or merely a nightmare. The inmate is a leering figure, thin and pale with a widow's peak, pointy ears, sharp teeth, and wearing a cloak. The film is long lost, but a prose adaptation was published in 1924 that Laszlo has translated. Learn how national record-keeping rules made it possible for the script to survive, and how Laszlo undertook his research and translation of the book. The book is published through Strangers from Nowhere and includes new illustrations by artist Joseph Schwab. I discussed with Laszlo the reason why he decided to self-publish Dracula's death rather than secure a publisher to do all the heavy lifting involved in the book's editing, printing, distribution, and promotion. We discuss some of the benefits and compromises you have to make when you use another publisher. How hard should you push back to see your vision? Let's find out. Please welcome my guest, Laszlo Tomasvi, the researcher, translator, and author of Dracula's Death, the lost 1921 silent horror film. Here now, on Creator Talks. Laszlo, welcome back to Creator Talks. Thank you for having me back. We had to delay our interview a day for a very good reason. You fostered a French bulldog. Oh, yes. It wasn't really timed on purpose, but it ended up being a great thing to do during the pandemic is that we started to volunteer with the Chicago English Bulldog Rescue and started fostering dogs. It's also a really good way to stop yourself from getting a third dog, just to <laughs> get one for a couple of months. So this little French, he lived with us through the fall, was adopted right before Christmas, and he just turned one years old, and he's forever family for his birthday, booked this indoors puppy playground and invited one of our dogs to join him. And so it was really, really fun to see these two reunited and just run around for an hour. It was really wonderful. Now, what's the Frenchie's name? Moose. Moose? Okay. <laughs> Why Moose? He came with the name Moose, but apparently at his first family, like there was a theme and he had big ears. So it actually, it's surprisingly fitting because, of course, he's tiny, but it's really cute. It fits him. And Moose was around your other pets. How did they react to that? On day one, they were best friends. They really loved each other. And we have a relatively young dog. And she's, I think, the most energetic English bulldog I've ever met. <laughs> so she was happy to have somebody to actually play with. That's great. Pets are so important. You know, they really help us to relax and keep the blood pressure down and give us unconditional love if they're a dog 
We've talked about cats on the show many times, and they're okay with you, but they could take you or leave you. <laughs> yes, as, as we're speaking, I have my 17-year-old cat mm-hmm. right by my feet, and she's really laid back and just she's probably the most relaxing out of out of our pets <laughs> she doesn't have a lot of exciting peaks of mm-hmm. activity yeah once they get past the kitten age they're pretty much even keel the yes. most exciting time is when you decide to sit down or go to bed and they want to curl up next to you we delayed our interview until sunday and this is the day that people move their clocks forward an hour probably the day i hate most out of the year There's no reason for it. I think it was more for business reasons than anything else. Nothing to do with farmers at all. And it screws up my circadian rhythms. It messes up the kids' rhythms. They won't go to bed when it's bedtime. Hello, melatonin. That's what seems to work. It's not fun. How are you adjusting to it? I mean, so far, so good. I Actually, I love that we reached the era where your phone and everything just does it. Oh, yeah. So you don't have to remember it. Mm -hmm. But I don't mind this time change. I really resent it. In the fall, it's dark out when it's six. Let's make it five. You know, like it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't early enough. Let's make it worse. And I'm like, no, no, it should go reverse. I don't know why we make it darker sooner in the winter. I always hated that. That's the part that really bothers me. Well, this is again reared its head in uh, government here. So they're looking at possibly moving the time permanently to either daylight savings time or standard time. And Arizona already skips it. We have to do whatever California does. And you can stay with standard time by federal law in your state. But to decide to stick with daylight savings time is a different story. So I don't know if anything will happen out of all this. But uh, it's fine. I know I changed all the clocks last night. You have to go and change all the thermostats. Now I got the water softener on top of that. I've got my four clocks with different time zones on the wall. I have to change uh, the cars. <laughs> but like you said, the phone, at least you can never oversleep now because that will always stay with the right time. Yeah, I think that was a great excuse that we kind of lost. Yeah. Like that was the one to be late from work for one day. You could play with that. But That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's nice that I can still work from home. That way I don't have to go into an office where the phones are all at the wrong time for about a week. <laughs> it just seems true. like every, wherever you work, no matter where it is, it always takes forever for the phones to get updated. <laughs> I'm one of those people, I think I will just ride the car. Uh-huh. Just let it catch up in six months. <laughs> like I don't. I just don't want to do it. Yeah, why go back to it? The thing is like, how do I change the clock? Every car is different. <laughs> it's like, where's the button? Oh, probably my oldest car is the easiest one to change the clock. <laughs> and the rest of them is like, now how do I do this? We got the manual. <laughs> you think I'd know by now. That's my task around the house. I do all the clock changes. But enough about time. It's time to get to Dracula's death. When I heard about this, I was just so excited because you have an adaptation of the screenplay and an explanation about the movie, its history, and the adaptation. You did a lot of research on this, and I had no idea that this film existed. I mean, you can Google it and find it, but I I didn't know it was there. And a lot of silent films, as we know, don't exist anymore. Nitrate stock, very flammable. People didn't care about silent films so much after the talkies came along. That was passe, and that was a shiny new thing. It was as soon as CDs came out, people went, oh, vinyl, and they didn't care anymore until they missed it. 
and a lot of it was recycled. A lot of films are gone, especially like here in the States, it's 75% are gone. But in Hungary, your native country, even more were lost. Yes, I think in Hungary, it's 93% of all silent films are lost. Well, it's something you can't recover from, even though the last several decades, there was a really serious effort to preserve whatever could be found out in the field or in archives. The big problem was the first 50 years of film. Up until the 50s, there was some effort to archive them, but there was nothing institutional. So there was nothing with real muscle behind it. One of the interesting things I learned while I did my research is that archiving really works when it's done on a large scale and without any editorial input, because sometimes you just don't know what will be important 100 years from now. So, for example, in Hungary, the actual name of the place is the National Széchenyi Library, but it's the nation's archives. It's a really old institution. They've been preserving the written heritage of the country, and they just gather everything. By law, every publisher has to submit a copy of everything they put out for preservation, and it means books and magazines, and there's real effort to collect even like flyers and posters. And it might not seem necessary, but it is once you go back several decades and you can rediscover things. And it's a really wonderful thing, but it's also difficult and hard to implement. Today, we can just digitize everything and films can be kept digitally, so they don't take up any space. But back then, a lot of things were recycled. Television shows were recycled on videotape. It was too expensive. So we lost a lot of things. And like you said, you don't know what's important until much later, the impact that it has on history. So I'm glad that a lot of documentation was saved. In your case, some of the documentation that was saved made it possible to know that the film even existed, that there was something in writing about it. And you went through a lot of research trying to find out about the film's existence, its filming, who was in the film. And part of the reason why it survives and people know about it was, oddly enough, another vampire film that people are familiar with, F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, somehow, in some ways, influenced people's perception and interest in Dracula's death. Tell me about the connection between those two and the difference between the two films. Dracula's Death was a black and white silent film made in the early 20s, and it is considered to be the first instance of Dracula showing up in any film. And this is where like the nerdy aspect of horror fandom comes in, because Nosferatu is the oldest surviving film. Famously, it is an adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel. But the filmmakers didn't have the rights to adapt the book, so they changed the names and the locations and were hoping to sort of go under the radar. The problem is that in many countries, Nosferatu was actually released as Dracula. It was extremely thinly veiled that it's an adaptation of the book, which of course caused some legal troubles for the filmmakers. Nosferatu is the oldest surviving movie. It came out in 1922. And... Dracula's death actually was made a year before, but hasn't been released until a year after Nosferatu, so in 1923. It sort of did the opposite of Nosferatu. They didn't bother to stick to the novel at all. They just picked Dracula's character and put him in a brand new story that revolves around 
Mary, who is a poor seamstress, and her father is seriously ill in a mental asylum. And basically, she goes to visit her dying father, and Dracula is one of the patients. Well, there's a patient who believes himself to be Dracula, and it's really intriguing and different, but like you can definitely recognize the character, and it's really strange. It is. Nosferatu, because of that problem with basically adapting Stoker's Dracula, they ordered a lot of those films to be, or all the copies, to be destroyed, and fortunately some survived. In this case, Dracula's death was a very different story. I read it and I was surprised how different it was. It was a nightmare, basically. As you said, an insane man thinking he was Dracula. But the appearance is great. There's a couple of publicity photos that exist, so we have an idea of what this character looked like. And it's pretty frightening. It's pretty. I, I wish a copy of this existed. I hope someday they find one, but that's pretty unlikely. And tell me about how you found out about the movie and how you found some information on its existence. I first learned about uh, the existence of the movie about a decade ago. It's time doesn't exist now in the <laughs> pandemic. So maybe it was six months ago. I don't know. <laughs> but I think mm -hmm. it was many, many years ago. And a Hungarian friend of mine, Viktor Juhász, he's a writer and translator. And he wrote a short story where the character discovers or learns about the movie. And that's how I first found out. And of course, I tried to look into it and I quickly realized that we do know some things. Some things were online and if you looked hard enough, you could find the surviving artifacts of the movie. But I really, I just wanted to satisfy my own curiosity initially. I quickly learned that there was already an English language translation that was published in 2010. And it was translated by Gary D. Rhodes, who is a really world-renowned scholar of uh, Bela Lugosi. And because of this, everything vampire-related. And Peter Litvan, who was his translating partner. And there was some information, and I quickly learned that we are very lucky that in 1924, a prose adaptation was published in a really small magazine. And that gave us a pretty detailed plot so we could tell what the movie was about. And magazines at the time were also publishing some advertisement and articles and reviews. And from this, we could sort of find out what the history of the movie was. Uh, basically, the magazines that were covering movies, which was a really new form of entertainment at the time, they were reporting on the making of the movie. So there were a handful of articles published in 1920 and 21, at the early days of the production, and then a new batch of articles in the year it was released eventually. And I set out to just find all of these and translate them and collect them for the first time and in their entirety. You could read smaller bits and quotes from these articles, but never the entirety. So now we have all those quotes in context of the article. And what was the reception at the time of the film? Because it's sometimes it's hard to get a read because the promotional material and interviews with the director, of course, they're trying to build it up, saying it's great, it's fantastic, you know, this is going to be amazing. And we don't have a film to see now and go back and put it in perspective with other films of its time and say, oh, this is a great film or the audience reaction. What did you find out about that? It didn't really connect with an audience as far as we could tell. Uh, it was made 
in a really difficult time in history. It was right after World War One. Production in Hungary collapsed. The country was flooded with movies from the West. There was no market for it. It probably only was released because Nosferatu was a surprise hit and the distributor probably wanted to cash in on it. And I think it came out too soon, only a few months after Nosferatu. And a lot of audiences were confused. They thought it was maybe the same movie. And an interesting thing, you mentioned how the courts ordered every copy of Nosferatu to be destroyed because it was infringing on somebody's copyright. And the movie was so popular that it still survived because so many copies of it were out there. And Dracula's death, as far as we know, never ran into any legal trouble. And it was just so unpopular that it just fizzled out on its own. It's really sad, but I don't know, probably a handful of copies existed maybe, and it just didn't really find its audience. Yeah, that's too bad. What we do know about it comes from a lot of the articles that you've researched and published here in the book. I thought was interesting when I read this. Who wrote the film? A lot of times the attribution goes to the director or they'll put their name on it. And even one article said that it was H.G. Wells who wrote the story, who clearly (laughs) didn't. So it's not clear who did the original screenplay. Nobody was really that strict about crediting. A copy of the movie survived maybe to have some detailed knowledge. The closest we get to an official credit is in the introduction of the novelization that was published in 24. It does state that the movie was written and directed by Károly Lajtai, who was a fairly well-known director in his time. But we're not 100% sure. In one interview, he does talk about writing it with another Hungarian director, Mihai Kert, who was actually a really, really well-regarded director of its time. But he is actually quite well-known in uh, the United States as well, because he immigrated here and started working under the name Michael Curtis, and he did direct Casablanca and won an Academy Award for it in 1943. I think he also directed House of Wax, which is more interesting for the fans of horror, but maybe he had a hand in writing the movie, which is kind of neat, but we just don't know for sure. Now, when you say he directed the House of Wax, was that the original one, 1933? I believe so, yes. That was just on television last night. <laughs> it's, why, it's funny you should mention that. I was just watching it last night. You do have photos, the existing photos in the book, so people can get an idea of what this makeup looked like that the lead actor wore, Paul Escanes. I hope I said that right. And you also have some illustrations in the book. Uh, you have an illustrator who used them as a reference to come up with new images to accompany the story. It's not a graphic novel, but there are illustrations in the book to help you picture this character and what is happening in the book. Tell me about this wonderful artist that you have on the book. His name is Josef Schwab. He's a really fantastic comic book artist. He lives in Hungary. I had a chance to work with him in the past, and I consider him a friend. We've never met in person, but we've been working together for many years. As soon as I had the concept for publishing an English language version of Dracula's death, I knew I wanted him to illustrate it because his style just 
is so beautiful and so elegant and it has a really classic feel to it. I asked him not to look too much into the film itself. The cover is sort of a reflection on the cover of the novelization. But I asked him to just use his imagination and just illustrate the prose without trying to make it look like this is what the silent film must have looked like. So I wanted him to just illustrate the book. It's really, really a beautiful publication. It's one of the best things about working with great artists is that it makes it really easy to recommend your own book <laughs> because like, you can pick it up and it's really stunning and it's really worth just for the art. One thing I would love to see, no pressure, but this would make a great graphic novel. I thought about it. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> I might revisit it. I do agree that it would probably make a really beautiful graphic novel. Yeah, I'll keep it in mind. It definitely is something I wouldn't mind to revisit in that shape as well. Some of the images, it would be great to see that. I'd rather see that as a graphic novel than see someone try to remake the film. One, I don't know how it would play today. Two, it would probably look nothing like the original. You couldn't do it. But some of these images and some of the scenes within the movie that we read about the woman who was trapped in the asylum, I was struck by, one, how easy it is to get stuck in an asylum. Two, <laughs> how the inmates can run the asylum and just be all over the place. Where two of the inmates are going to operate on her eye, they insist they fix her eye, which is really creepy. And that's, I think, was probably one of the biggest scenes in the film. If it existed, I think people would really be taken aback. And then, of course, there was the huge wedding scene which sounds very lavish. It was shot in the studio, Corbin Film Studios, and the way it was described seemed very lavish and also nightmare-inducing the way it plays out. To see these illustrated at some point would be really great. One of the things that got me really excited about this, of course, we are familiar with Bram Stoker's novel, which is a classic, but we don't realize that how much of what we consider to be fundamentally part of the character of Dracula is like Nosferatu was the movie that established the fact that vampires die in the sunlight. Or you can just show Dracula's cape to anybody on the planet and they would recognize that it's Dracula. And that came from the stage play, which I think it started in 1927. So it was an invention of the stage play to put this theatrical cape on the character. So what I was really interested to find out, what were the little interpretations of Dracula and Dracula's death that were really different? And maybe in an alternative universe where the movie was popular, maybe something could have been added to the lore of Dracula. For example, at one point, it's heavily implied that Dracula takes the shape of an owl to visit Mary. That actually makes just as much sense as the bat. Like owls are nocturnal and they're predators and they have the ears. It looks great. And I'm like, that would have been a really neat thing to see. Or Dracula is walking around with a royal cloak. So it's not the cape of Bela Lugosi. It's a cape of a king because Dracula was of royal blood. And it probably would look funny now if we actually saw it. But what a neat, interesting interpretation of the character. Just to see him wearing this outfit would have been really charming, I think. In that wedding scene, Dracula says to Mary, I bid you welcome, which 
right away, I'm thinking of Bela Lugosi in the movie Dracula, which was much later. And I don't know if that was just a coin of phrase at the time that everybody said, but it immediately reminded me of Dracula. And I wonder if that's a coincidence. Honestly, maybe it was just me <laughs> translating it. <laughs> uh, I couldn't help it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so he definitely says like, welcome or I welcome you. So I translated the novelization and I had an editor on it who happens to be my sister, Erica Romero, but she is a, like she studied linguistics. So she was an extremely skilled and really great editor to have. I knew I had to have somebody help me who was bilingual. I couldn't have just an English speaking person help me because I was afraid that they would fix the language because it's old time. It's old fashioned. It's a little bit strange. I'm glad it actually resonated with you because I was like, this might be my only chance to write Dracula in any shape or form. I'm glad you brought that up because I was wondering how the translation process took place. Because I think about biblical scholars looking at ancient texts and saying, that's not the exact translation from the Greek. This is what the word is. And in some church services, some of the prayers have been changed to better match what the original intent was of the writers of the scriptures. And I was wondering how much leeway, and now I know, that you allowed with the translation, because I'm glad you did not fix things that sounded old-timey when it was written, and we don't want to contemporize it too much. And that little piece you snuck in there which is still the same message, but in a way that it ties it to the legacy of Dracula that we all know and love was pretty cool. Was there anything else you had difficulty with in the translation? Yes, the original book, it's a really great read, and I think it has a lot of merit, but it was a pop publication. We are mostly familiar with, like, I think the works of H.P. Lovecraft come to mind, but we know that he really agonized over his prose and took great care in it. And Dracula's death, I can just imagine somebody chain smoking and just typing away frantically <laughs> to meet a deadline. So in parts, it has almost like a stream of consciousness to the text, like it just keeps rolling. You can tell it was written with a great momentum. But because of this, not everything clicks. There are some plot holes in it, but it's fine. It's all really charming. And I think it's important to preserve. I always say this book was a wonderful pandemic project because I had time to just stare at it and really give it the attention it needed. It was difficult, but in a, I guess challenging is the better way. It was challenging, but very enjoyable. And if you read it, you can tell that in places the author was just kind of going with it. It's pretty great. Well, I'm glad that you did help to preserve this story through this translation and also the additional material, the research that you did, digging up the complete articles and having those translated. Do you think you'll do another project like this where you're doing a lot of sleuthing and work putting things together for a missing film? Yes and no. In a sense, I don't want to talk too much about it, but there is a book that I might be publishing later this year if everything works out. And it's similar and very different at the same time, but it has that rediscovered classic feel to it. 
I shouldn't talk too much about it because it's not written in stone yet, but definitely something in this vein is coming down the line. As far as the research, I knew early on that this is a book that I could dive into. And one of the things I wanted to do was to find out everything there is to find out and in a way to become an expert at this subject. And what I really wanted to do was to put it in a book so that if you read it, you, the reader, become an expert as well, because there's nothing else that we know of at this stage that can be read about it. I really didn't hold back as far as like the details and I just put everything that survived into this publication. I don't know if there's another subject that I could feel that confidence that I could really do it justice. If I do, it has to be something small. I wouldn't want to be the expert of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein because there's just too much out there. Now, the book's already out. It came out in February. It was February 27th. You can find that on Strangers from Nowhere. Strangers from Nowhere is a small press publishing entity that I created. And our first book is Dracula's Death. You can find it through our website or just on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or if you want, you can ask your local bookstore to order it for you. So it should be available everywhere. We are coming out with a limited edition numbered hardcover version in probably a couple of weeks, and that will only be available through our website. Your book was written up in Rumorg magazine. That must have been pretty exciting. I've been a huge fan of Rumorg for many, many years I actually have right behind me in our office, I have an entire bookshelf that's nothing but back issues of Room Org. I think if you're a horror fan, you probably have some affection to the magazine. They constantly cover not only movies, but prose and comics and music. Yeah, it's, it's a great honor to be featured in their magazine. So I'm very happy. Well, I'm very happy you did the book, and thank you for doing the book. And it took a lot of time. But like you said, hey, we had time. <laughs> there was nothing else going on in this country and in the world with COVID. But it is a, a really good adaptation for fans of horror, and especially for people like me who are fans of missing films or restored films. I really enjoyed it. If people like that type of thing, I urge them, please check it out at your local bookstore. Have your comic shop order it. Or if you want to wait for that uh, limited edition. But I jump on this now. I get a copy and read it. It's really good. Thank you. The reason why we decided to do the hardcover after the paperback already came out is I wanted to honor, I think the original was just this publication that was widely available and you could probably buy it on newsstands and on your way to work on the train, you could read it. The hardcover edition will be a nice collector's item, but it was meant to be a paperback that you could just get inexpensively and enjoy and it's okay if you fold the corners and it's fine. You know? <laughs> Just you can read it. Right. Normally, when I have guests on, for the first time, I ask them my fun questions, nine questions now. And you've answered some of those questions, your last appearance here. And I have a few other questions I'd like to ask you just to get your feedback on these. Laszlo, do you have a guilty pleasure? Oh, that is a great question. I have a great affection to 90s pop music. 90s, early 2000s. So during our last conversation, my love for Nine Inch Nails and David Bowie came up. Yeah, you can put on a Spice Girls Pandora station and I'll be happy. Like, I don't know, like just great running music. Like, you can, mm -hmm. I don't want to be jogging to some heavy, <laughs> heavy thing, you know? You had uh, posted on social media that Rob Zombie has a new album out and I haven't heard it. Pretty good? I love Rob Zombie. I think I love the person and the idea the most. I really enjoyed the album. 
you can say that it's like all the other Rob Zombie albums. I don't need him to do something crazy. Like, I really enjoyed it. It's pretty much delivers what you hoped it would be. Yeah, it's really good. He was here in Vegas, and it was before the pandemic. I think it was October before the pandemic. It was a bunch of artists performing, and he would be going on late. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to that. It's too late. <laughs> and then, of course, the pandemic hit, and I was like, why didn't I go? <laughs> Because uh, listening to one of my favorite podcasts, it's in my podcast catcher, Thrash It Out, a heavy metal review podcast. And one of the things they reviewed was White Zombie's Astro Creep. Speaking of Rob Zombie, I love that album. And that is one that I do run to when I run. So uh, I can see why you have some affection for the 90s music, because this is straight out of the 90s with all kinds of samples from movies, including The Curse of Frankenstein. It's worth checking out if you like that kind of music. It's great. And also, of course, the Hellbilly Deluxe was the first Rob Zombie solo album. Mm -hmm. That's when I listened to on repeat uh -huh. quite a lot. Yeah, Missing Shows. That's always a heartbreaker when you think about it. Like, that was my last chance to go to that convention, you know, in yeah. 2019. Was that the last thing you had a chance to do before the pandemic was go to C2E2? Yes. Like looking back, I'm horrified because it was the very end of February. And I looked into it when the anniversary popped up on my phone. And they estimated there were like 90,000 people. Wow. <laughs> and like it was like 10 days away from yeah. the lockdown. I'm like, I don't know what we were thinking. I don't know how it happened. It's, it's insane. I have one thing I really heartbroken about it. Of course, everybody has some trivial thing that they missed out. And of course, the real tragedy of the pandemic is the pandemic, people's lives. I think we can afford to mourn our missed vacations and concerts. I actually had tickets to go to see Nine Inch Nails be inducted at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Ooh. And Depeche Mode was supposed to be there too, so I was supposed to see both Depeche Mode and Nine Inch Nails on stage oh, wow. on the same night. And I got tickets, and I stayed up like all night to be <laughs> to be able to buy the tickets. Like it wasn't easy, and I finally did it. It never happens to me. I bought one of these tickets that sell out in five minutes, and of course, it didn't happen because of the pandemic. Man, yeah, yeah, that's heartbreaking. I would be so disappointed. I know how much that means to you. I'm so sorry to hear that. I've never seen a Depeche Mode live, and that's on my bucket list. I have to at one point before they stop touring. Well, that was a missed opportunity, not one of your own fault. Do you have any missed opportunities you can recall that you would care to share? Of course, in retrospect, you can see how there are certain books you could have pushed harder uh, definitely I could think of battles I should have fought harder, both creatively and like when dealing with publishers and all that things. But I tend to just focus on the fact that I, I feel extremely fortunate and I'm really, really happy in my life. Every time the idea of sort of like changing anything in the past comes up, I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> I don't want to mess it up. I'm very happy that everything led to this point in my life. I didn't have any big opportunities I missed, but if I did, I'm still at peace with it. You mentioned pushing harder with publishers. Do you think that's wise? Do you think that would go over well? I don't know if I would want to do that and have myself blacklisted as a troublemaker. Maybe they wouldn't perceive it that way. What do you think is the right amount of initiative and pressure to put on publishers to be noticed? 
That is a great question. I think it's something you can only find out as you do it. The most important part is, I think, the creative decisions as you're making a book. I've only dealt with comic book publishers. But as you make the book, you have to decide what is it that you should fight for and what is it just your need to control the project. And a lesson that a lot of creators lose sight of is that in publishing, both parties have to equally benefit. So I can come up with a list of things I would like my publisher to do, but I have to keep in mind that it has to make sense for them. It's an investment and they have to sort of benefit from it alongside with me. I think the biggest thing you have to look at is what is it that only a publisher can do? I think self-publishing came such a long way that a publisher really has to bring, I don't know, 15 years ago, publisher was bringing in distribution and manufacturing of a book. These were the two big things that you needed them for. And today you look and sometimes you're like, well, the publisher uses the exact same channels I would be using to distribute. And sometimes they use the same manufacturing channels I would use. So it still might be worth going through a publisher, but we have to let go of some of the old ideas of what this relationship is and just find a way to make it work. I would definitely be less and less worried about pushing. I think if you're pushing for something rational, you want to work with a publisher who recognizes it and wants to be behind it. I think the older I get, the more comfortable I would be just stepping away from something that doesn't feel quite right. Yes. Now you make some really good points about that. There are the same distribution channels that you can use independently. The technology has changed a lot now and distribution has changed a lot that a lot of creator-owned and independent projects are now possible. I think one of the big things that a publisher can provide is promotion and marketing because that can be very expensive depending upon who you're trying to reach. If you have found a niche audience that is very passionate about a particular subject, in case in point, Dracula's death, I was the target for that right there. You, <laughs> people like me, you hit the target. Oh, great. And you'll find a very interested and engaged audience. It may not be huge but it'll be enough that the book can be successful and you can have a success. That works at that level. Um, I just think the bigger publishers probably have more of a budget for big marketing efforts because sometimes you can only go so far with social media on your own. Unless, of course, you have a very large and passionate following or just a very active, passionate following who is a strong backers of your work and actually do purchase and enjoy your work. It's definitely a huge problem to tackle promotion and getting your book to an audience. And of course, a publisher can also assist you with editing. And if you do comics, if you're lucky, the publisher takes on the financial burden of compensating the artist and the colorist. So there's a lot that they can still do, but we need to look at it as like a really exciting times. And I'm lucky I found Moving to Chicago, this is a big comic book city, so there are a lot of professionals and people who work in comics and at all kinds of levels of success. So I was able to make friends with peers who I can talk about these issues with. And we, we often talk about how you can always look back and see the industry change, 
how it changed 10 years ago and in the 60s or 80s. And you see those creators who were ahead of the curve. And then there were some people who kept trying to stick to the old ways of doing things. So things are really changing. I'm not sure if the traditional model of making and distributing comics will survive in its current form. So we're trying to look at it as a positive, as to like be excited about the future and look forward and see what opportunities there are to take advantage of. And there is some risk involved in publishing on your own. And you, know, you have to accept the financial burden of that and, of course, having the right connections to produce the book, a good editor, as you have, and a good artist. What other situation was there when you took a risk? Creatively or in life? Either. <laughs> I think creatively, everything you do is a risk. Probably the biggest risk is doing something safe. There's an equal chance that it will not work out and what you're left with is a really safe work of art. But even just as far as like being nervous about audience reaction, I think just being a writer is a risk <laughs> because every time you put something out for the audience to read, you can fall flat on your ass. There's no real safe way to do it. At one point, you just have to decide to put your work out and let the audience see it and you hope for the best. And that's what you can do, really. How do you categorize Dracula's death? Is that something that's considered safe to you? Well, actually, it's relatively safe in a sense that I, I know that the original book, Justice, with the translation, and I think we present it in a really beautiful way with the art. So there's an essay in the book that sort of sums up everything that I was able to find about the history of the movie and the book. And in the process of making the book, I spoke with a lot of experts and I was in touch with the Hungarian Film Archives and the National Library. And so I know that my research is sound. I'm not afraid of like really embarrassing myself with some data that's not going to hold up. In a way, it's very safe. The risk in it is that it's very niche. It's very specific. This is my first book that I'm self-publishing. And one of the reasons why I wanted to self-publish it, because I didn't want to fight this battle with a publisher, some of the original articles probably could have been trimmed to make it more entertaining. Some of the data was maybe a little bit too nuanced and specific, and maybe a general audience wouldn't connect with it. But this book isn't for the general audience. I don't mind that you can't buy it at the airport. It would probably make a terrible book to read on an airplane as you're stuck next to some stranger for eight hours. This book was made for fans of the genre who, are, who love nerding out on details and information. And so I guess the risky part was I'm hoping to find that audience, but it's really rewarding. And this is the closest to any book of mine that ended up being the way I imagined it when I set out to make it, that makes it extremely rewarding. Like this, it's a very thin book. It's 84 pages. I think you could read it in one sitting. But this little book was a year and a half of research and work. And it sort of turned out the way I hoped it would. And I'm, I couldn't be more proud of it. As you should be. Dracula's Death, now available. Laszlo, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you so much for having me. 
All right, folks, next week I have another returning guest with a new project. He is Pornsack Pichetschot. The writer of Infidel is now the writer of The Good Asian. It is a crime mystery set in 1936 Chinatown, told from the perspective of a self-loathing Chinese-American detective named Edison Hark. It is a realistic story of an Asian detective, unlike films of the period featuring Charlie Chan. That interview is coming up in two weeks on Thursday. The show is available every other week on Thursday. And as a result, because of work demands and I do this as a hobby, I'm not able to do interviews about Kickstarters as much as I used to. In fact, I don't do them anymore. The reason, by the time I get the content out to you, it's too late to act to take advantage of that Kickstarter campaign if you wish to back it. So now I have Kickstarter Corner in which I will update you about current Kickstarter projects that previous guests of the show are running right now. First up is Matt Mayer Lowry's Thoughtscape Comics number one. This is a sci-fi anthology series. The other is Samuel George London's The Milford Green Saga, oversized hardcover edition. Now, George will be coming to this show in the future about another project that is not a Kickstarter. And I was recently on his show, Comics for the Apocalypse. It's a great format. I had a lot of fun. So check it out. To make it easy for you, links to both of these Kickstarters are in the show notes. And now the usual business to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. I am at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. Occasionally on weekends, I will post comics from my personal collection, those from the Silver Age, Bronze Age, and Copper Age. These are not off the internet. These are ones that I have and have read and cherish. And the best way to reach me is through email. My email address is creatortalks at gmail.com, creatortalks at gmail.com. I have a lot more content coming your way. I have interviews already in the can, enough that actually will carry me through June. So as listeners know, I work way ahead, so more of my material will be evergreen. That's all for now. This has been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.